HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a new podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $170 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. On each episode, we want to share the stories behind the products that are made and sold by our members, who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Gretchen Van Esselstyn, Director of Education at SFA. We're so happy to bring you our first episode, and also so pleased to be working with Heritage Radio Network to bring you this show. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way that eaters think about food. For our first guest, we have Doug Renfro of Renfro Foods. Doug is a great friend to SFA, and his products are beloved by everyone. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for having me. So, Doug, let's get into it. What does your company produce? Well, technically, from an FDA perspective, we make and sell acidified and acid foods, but translating that into normal speech, uh, we produce condiments such as salsa, relish, queso, bean dip, and barbecue sauces. And how many years have you been in the industry? That's a tough one because my grandparents started the company 81 years ago. I worked in the factory every summer between sixth grade and college graduation. Then I spent seven years outside the business after college, getting experience and more education, then came back 29 years ago. Oh, boy. So you've been in this since, uh, you said sixth grade? I'm not so sure that we should be mentioning that. I don't know if that's legal, Doug. I, uh, I was child ab- labor laws. I was absolutely illegal, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And so did you have sort of a food background before you jumped back into the family business? I didn't have a food background other than having worked, you know, as a teenager and a college student. But in the giant 
multi-billion dollar corporation I worked for for seven years out of college, I became a spreadsheet guru. And you wouldn't naturally think this, but working with recipes and product development, you have to solve for X a lot. Eighth grade algebra, which I thought was useless at the time, turned out to be very useful. And when you're scaling, for example, a two quart recipe to 500 gallons, uh, spreadsheets and, and math can be quite handy. So the things I did in financial modeling and costing for multi-hundred million dollar division of a company that had nothing to do with food actually helps me with recipes all the time. 500 gallons. Is that, is that like a day's worth of rent salsa, an hour? <laughs> That's about 40 minutes. About 40 minutes. Oh boy. About, it, you know, I don't know if this is a trade secret, but how many gallons are you guys uh, putting out in, uh, say, a, a week, a month, I, a year? I convert it into jars per day because I do get that question a lot. And we do food service. So we have products in gallons and 16-ounce jars, 32-ounce jars, etc. If you convert it all into pint jars, we make about 100,000 jars a day. 100,000 jars a day. Oh, boy. How, how's food service going these days? We got really lucky. I'm a big fan of the comment, better lucky than smart. And for almost 30 years, we had hitched our wagon, so to speak, to a client who had six stores when we got started with them. Now they have 1,600. And they were pioneers of taking orders through social media apps before that was a thing. And they also, their whole model is they were 80% to go versus dine-in already. So they grew about 35% during the pandemic. And we we have some other food service clients and then they did certainly suffer some, but we were just very fortunate to have one superstar as our primary food service focus. Fantastic. So take us back a bit. How did the idea for Renfro Foods come about with your family? You know, it's extremely evolutionary. When we're at the fancy food show and we have all our cool variety salsas out these days, people look at me and my cousins and say, you know, are these your grandmother's recipes? And I always reply, no, but wouldn't that be cool? Um, nobody ate Chipotle in 1940, 50, 60, 70. My granddad worked distributing grocery items in the 30s for another company. Then he started out of his own house in 1940. And for 12 years, he and my grandmother did that. They distributed you know, flavored vinegars and garlic cloves and different things to stores. Then they started making syrup and no maple trees were harmed, by the way. Then when I was a kid and my cousins, we made a Southern relish, very specific item, which is why we had no money. In the seventies, my dad and my uncle got into the taco sauce world. And even when I came back 29 years ago, we had mild, medium and hot picante sauce and a green taco sauce. And that was our, our variety at the time, pretty much. So Everything you've seen that we're known for now happened after that. My Our generation has created Chipotle corn and tequila, craft beer, salsa, mango, habanero. And then we've expanded half of what we do is make things for other people. So we create all sorts of products you would have no idea we make, but sadly, I cannot talk about them. <laughs> so your grandmother was not growing ghost peppers in her garden? No, I think the crushed red pepper and our hot chow chow relish is probably the hottest thing she ate. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And how about when, when you were growing up in this family uh, of food entrepreneurs, did your parents encourage you to try new foods? I know that you are a big foodie and you're always somebody who will uh, order the most interesting thing on the menu. Where did that come from? 
I've always been curious. We didn't have a lot of money, so going out for a, a dinner at a restaurant was was pretty rare, and it was pretty southern chicken fried steak sort of varietal. Uh, but I would do things like discovered food coloring in the in the kitchen and added. I remember making like red, yellow, blue, and green cookies, which my mom wasn't real excited about. And in college, for an English essay, we had to do something on a how do you make such and such. And I did a chocolate Kahlua milkshake. Uh, and really, though, we didn't have a lot of exposure to exotic foods until I went to work at 21 for this company where there were 100 people in the office in Dallas. But I was the only one from Dallas-Fort Worth. We had people from California, Singapore, you know, Ecuador. And so I was exposed to all these ethnic foods and really began to get excited about the flavors and the fusion. And as you know, to this day, if I go somewhere and there's a fried octopus eyeball, I have to eat that because I want to know what we might be doing five years from now in an everyday value salsa or what might be useful to somebody from a food service perspective that today is cutting edge. Uh, chewy, right? The octopus eyeball, a little bit chewy. You got to saute it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to get that texture just right. How about, let's talk about some of the obstacles that you've faced, you know, bringing some of your newer brands to market and evolving the brand. What's the journey been like? It's been long and winding. You know, we are currently the number one independent salsa brand in the country. And literally 29 years ago, I would take product to a party and people would ask where they could buy it. And I would say Milwaukee and Napa, for some reason, was an early adapter. And maybe a farmer's market in Houston. It was very slow because everybody had a million salsas and didn't want any more. So one day when nobody was looking, I threw some black beans in our medium salsa. And then I'd come across what was considered a crazy, exotic, sexy pepper habanero, which now, of course, is mundane. But at the time, nobody knew what it was. And we would go to people and say, I know you have a million salsas. What you don't have is some variety like black bean salsa, habanero, extra hot salsa at an everyday price. I don't mean the $13 specialty housewarming gift salsa that nobody will ever actually consume. I mean, things that your customers will buy and rebuy for the rest of their natural lives. And we ever were, of course, just making this up as we went along, but it started getting some traction and we started being known for the variety salsas. And we had a long track record as a company. Customers are very hesitant sometimes to take on new brands from somebody that started in their house two weeks ago. But when you've been around for decades, they feel better about it. And we had a good promotional program and we had hired our first non-family executive who was our sales director has been with us almost 30 years also. And we traipsed around the country being told no <laughs> over and over and over and over. Uh, but occasionally you get a yes and, and you circle the wagons uh, when you get one customer in Boston, for example, their competitors watch them and one of them starts bringing it in. And after a while, after three or four years, you're in all the retailers in that area and then you move on to somewhere else. So if you could start over from when you entered the family business, what do you think you might do differently? I would probably push harder for updating the branding. It's so expensive and it just freaks out the older generation, particularly when they've not had any any money for that sort of thing. But it's so critical because every time we rebrand, we see just a surge in sales and the buzz amongst consumers and the brokers and reps and distributors. And uh, early on, our label looked like my grandmother whipped up in the station wagon, which is what 
we wanted it to look like when that was designed in like 1958. The problem was it was now 1992 and it looked remarkably like all the generic labels. We were actually starting to have brokers resign the account because they said the product's awesome, the family's awesome, your promotional plans are awesome, the label's horrible, we hate it, repeat. And when we finally spent a little money and got a more professional label, we did a custom lid and glass jar at the same time. The sales just went through the roof and that really started propelling us to the next level. So this is an interesting business that we're in. Um, what would you say was your biggest surprise in getting involved in the specialty food trade? My biggest surprise was that there are a significant, not huge, but a significant number of buyers who could care less about the, the romance, so to speak, of this is a family business. These are our personal recipes. There is a heritage here. You occasionally would be interrupted by somebody who would bark out, can you or can you not give us six free jars per item per store? <laughs> and didn't want to hear about my grandmother or why I felt that mango habanero was going to be a huge trend, that sort of thing. I just felt everybody was as passionate as me. Or the other surprise is if you're eating with one of the most important retail food buyers in the country and they want to go to McDonald's and hopefully that doesn't get us sued. But I think every meal very personally and seriously and want to go support smaller independent restaurants or people on the cutting edge. You know, if McDonald's had the fried ostrich uh, elbow sandwich, I would certainly go try that. But life is too short to just have the same boring things every day. Great. So you, you've talked a little bit about the brand evolving, but let's get a little deeper into that. How do you feel like in your long and storied career at Renfro Foods, how the brand has evolved. It's really been about the flavors. I did a talk yesterday and they always wonder why I bring up the cover of a magazine from 15 years ago. But there was a day when Mrs. Renfro's and Coca-Cola were on the same cover of a industry magazine as examples of flavor innovation at a time when we were still just fighting to get some progress. And we had come out with peach salsa, which our internal joke was we should have put a question mark after the name because the way it was pronounced for the first two years was peach salsa. And they would also usually respond gross. And it sounds very normal to you now because every fruit has a salsa with it. But at the time it was pioneering and it sounded odd. The sweet heat combination was still odd to people. And when you're early, you do take a lot of abuse and rejection and you just have to buckle down and keep going. If you believe in what you're doing, if you believe it's going to be delicious and good for you and fun to cook with, but you're not going to have everybody just agree with you immediately. So Doug, one topic that we always turn to you for advice on is trade promotions. Could you explain what that means to our listeners and talk a little bit about what makes a trade promotion successful? Sure. You would think maybe that you offer something for sale and people buy it and now we're done. But in reality, the industry expects promotions on a regular basis. Many of my friends in our company will be, for example, 15 to 20% off three or four times a year for maybe four weeks each time. And there's multiple ways that can be done. Sometimes a scan down is where you're only charged back for what items scan through the register. There could also be 
and off invoice, which means they can buy as much as they want and they save the money on all that product. And if they happen to buy six months worth, then you would have sold them six months worth on deal. They're probably not going to do that because they have to put it somewhere, but just something to be aware of. And these days, things have really evolved in that Facebook and Instagram are huge parts of everyone's marketing program, which of course, 10 years ago was not the case. But your fundamental, I'm off 15% for four weeks, three times a year, that's still going to be a very core part of a business. And free field placement, free distribution, the, the price to get on the shelf initially, which is highly negotiable, is always out there. And if you can be certified as any sort of minority whatsoever, woman-owned, et cetera, many times there are programs that will let you bypass that. Doug, you mentioned social media. Um, I know that you are very active on social media and have had some interesting uh, relationships come up because of that. Any good stories for us there? One of my favorite situations is an example of why you just need to repeatedly post, even though most of it will be a waste of your time. Is one morning I woke up and a friend had screenshot where the Today Show used a Twitter joke of mine on national television, it took up the entire screen for 30 seconds. That probably would have cost us $50,000 and it would have been an ad and nobody would have looked, but they, they were specifically looking for a funny comment about something that had happened. And I made one just for grins because I was amused, had no idea that was going to happen. What doesn't happen is if you don't ever post, you'll never be on the Today Show. <laughs> so it's a, it's just, you know, it, catch 22, but you have to constantly be out there. And then absolutely people will cross promote you. Things will happen that you had no idea were even a possibility. So Doug, what would you like people to know about your brand that they might not know? The primary thing I'd like them to know is there really was a Mrs. Renfro. She really did work in the business for about 30 years. We actually still have ledgers with her handwriting on them, which is awesome. We have great archival footage, which our current social media platform, we do a lot of family photos and just reminding people the family is behind this company and seeing your grandmother at a desk that's actually was located about 10 feet from where I'm sitting right now, even though we've reconfigured it, it's very heartwarming still. So nice. Well, thank you, Doug. So we're almost out of time, but before you go, we would like you to participate in our final segment, Take 5, where we'll do five rapid-fire questions for you. But first, let's pause for a break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. All right, Doug Renfro, here are your five questions for our final segment, Take Five. So first, what is your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? I literally get paid to play with food. And if you think about that, it's pretty cool. 
I tell people my cross to bear is that I have to eat at the finest restaurants around the country or the world looking for the trends and condiments that we can convert five years from now into something mainstream that today are very exotic. And every time I pass a grocery store on a vacation, my wife looks at me and she says, you have five minutes <laughs> because she knows I have to go in there and see what's going on. And what's your biggest gripe about the specialty food industry? My biggest gripe is that there are still some people who have no passion for what they're doing, that I could be selling them hammers and nails for all they care. It's all about the profit margin and the pricing and the logistics. And I want to deal with people who are very excited about the clam chowder they found last week. If you weren't busy running Renfro Foods, what do you think you would be doing? Well, my little known fun fact is I went to state competition in high school on piano and saxophone, played banjo and guitar before that. So even though I can only play the kazoo now, there was a moment in time when I thought about being a music major and then I quickly realized I was pretty good, but I was not world class and I would been I would have been working in cocktail bars till three in the morning and not making much money. And it's uh, much more fun to to play with food. I get to conduct symphonies by seeing the production line and getting all the parts in there but i actually get to go home at a normal time and i knew who my kids were growing up that was fun i'm trying to picture you playing the banjo in a cocktail bar (laughs) it's on youtube probably (laughs) we'll definitely watch for that segment great so what piece of advice would you give to a new specialty food business just getting started i always try to emphasize and it catches people off guard that it's way more important to be stubborn and tenacious and persistent than it is to be smart. And I'm not saying you can be a moron in this business, but you're going to be lied to, ridiculed, rejected on a just continual basis. I know that's very cheerful. But if you're prepared for that and you just keep your head down and keep forging ahead, be very polite but persistent, it's far more important than being super intelligent. Fantastic. And Doug Renfro. How would you define specialty food? Wow. Specialty is such a subjective concept. I started to say, okay, commodities are not specialty. And then I thought, well, a chipotle glazed cinnamon honey dipped almond is specialty, even though a truckload of almonds is not specialty. So it's really, uh, I think, in the tongue of the beholder. Oh, now I'm going to need a chipotle glazed honey dipped almond (laughs) or a handful of them. This is the time of year when our suppliers send a pound of toffee and goodies like that about every 12 minutes. So I'm always frantically racing out to the reception area to see what we have now. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Doug. Thanks for letting me play. So thanks for joining us today. You can find out more about this show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. Special thanks to Doug Renfro of Renfro Foods and to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a Specialty Food Association podcast.